And I'm Christina Della Rocha. Welcome to Season 4 of Solarpunk Presence, the podcast introducing you to the people working today to create a future we'd like to live in. Because if Solarpunk as a genre of fiction dreams about the just and sustainable world we'd like to live in in the future, Solarpunk as a movement rolls up its sleeves and gets down to the business of bringing it about in the present. We hope you enjoy this episode, but first, we need your support. Come join our Patreon at patreon.com slash solarpunkpresence for all sorts of good stuff like bonus clips, dispatches, photo essays, and early access to episodes. Or you can spread the word by writing our podcast a review or recommending us to a friend, or you can do both. And be sure to visit our beautiful new website and catch up on our blog at solarpunkpresence.com. And now, on to the episode. Welcome, everyone, to Season 4 of Solarpunk Presents. Yay! I'm Christina, and... I'm Ariel, and also yay. Uh, <laughs> to kick off this season, we're going to talk about solarpunk housing. Because not only is housing one of the biggest problems we have to solve at the moment... One of the central imaginings of solarpunk is housing. Huge, beautiful buildings covered in plants and solar panels where we can all live comfortably and sustainably with a minimal footprint upon the land, or cute cottages at the core of permaculture gardens bursting with herbs, vegetables, fruit trees, and pollinators, and lots of compost piles and vertical solar-powered hydroponics. Mm. But but Solarpunk needs deeper thoughts on housing than this, because housing is more than just idealized dreams of dwellings. Housing is, again, a major problem that needs solving. Yeah, I mean, in many parts of the world, there's just not enough of it. Housing is also often treated primarily as an asset by its owners, rather than as primarily a place to live. Because of these two things, housing is often too expensive for the average person to buy. Or, in the case of places like Los Angeles and many other big cities, even rent. And this leads to predatory mortgages, predatory landlords, and people living on the streets in tents, RVs, or cars, or even in nothing more than sleeping bags. In many places, housing sprawls, requiring so many roads, parking spaces, leading to traffic jams, unwalkable neighborhoods, urban wastelands, and the economic necessity of a vehicle, which can be out of reach for a lot of folks, not to mention dangerous and polluting. And on that note, it's important to keep in mind that so much of our current stock of housing is not energy efficient and relies on heavily polluting and highly carbon-emitting means for heating or air conditioning. Meanwhile, most of the current stock of housing here in the West was designed for nuclear families back in the day, and now it often houses older people who are living more or less on their own. Unsurprisingly, people are lonelier than ever, and they don't have the support that they need in old age or when raising young children or just whenever one human needs another for whatever reason. This means a lot of elderly people who could have lived with their children until the end of their lives need to move into assisted living facilities or other types of care homes, although at least they can sell their overpriced homes to help pay for it, if they were able to buy a home in the first place, that is. Housing is a situation that's ripe for reimagining. Because there are so many ways we could be doing housing better. 
And we should start doing housing better if we want to build a better, more just, more sustainable future for ourselves and for everyone else. So let's talk solar punk housing. Yes, let's. So, Christina, let me throw the first question out to you. What do you think solar punk housing would look like? And I don't mean this just visually. Well, I have to confess, although I like living in my own house as much as the next person, I'm totally hung up on the idea of solar punk housing as being communal. You know, and I don't mean this in the sense of, you know, this sort of nightmare of communal living um, that you think of in like communist states or, or even in Ursula Le Guin's, I think it was the dispossessed, you know, where you're living in these dorm type settings and your kids go off to a nursery and um, nobody has their own personal space. But what the, what I'm hung up on is the idea of huge, nearly self-contained buildings housing thousands of people in their own apartments, but with tons of communal spaces in the building, like local markets and then all sorts of cultural activities and places to get exercise and stuff like that. And to explain that a bit more, um, let me tell you about the apartment building my aunt and my grandmother lived in back in the 1970s in Los Angeles. Okay. I had this building in in my memory, of course, I was a little kid, so maybe I'm confabulating. Is that the right word here? But it took up an entire city block. It probably didn't, but it seemed like it to me. So let's just say it took up an entire city block. And the actual, the apartments, you know, the building... It, the actual building building part of it, it was just one apartment thick, but it ran along the perimeter of this block. So there was this big courtyard inside this block size space around which was lined with apartments. And the building itself was probably five or six stories high. And so there were probably were about a thousand people who lived in here. And wow. I used to love going to visit them because they had this big internal courtyard, which had a swimming pool and mm-hmm. a hot tub. And it had grassy lawns, it had loungers, you could get sun, you could have a little barbecue with your family if you wanted to. And also on the ground level, there was also a recreation room. So you could play ping pong or you could play pool. And then they had like a weight room, a fitness room with all Mm -hmm. sorts of crazy fitness equipment. And this being the 1970s, they had all of this, this really funny fitness equipment that we don't use anymore. Like they had... One of these things, and you see them in like the old Tom and Jerry cartoons. They had one of these things you you could actually sit in and like your head would stick out of it and it would get really hot. And I guess you were melting your fat um, oh. that way <laughs> in this sort of like mini That's sauna. kind of terrifying. <laughs> the other thing this little exercise room had, okay, this is totally off topic, but um, I just think this is so funny. It had one of these machines that, again, you see in the old Tom and Jerry cartoons where there's this like band that you can strap around your waist and then you press go. And it shakes you. (laughs) So I guess to like shake your fat cells loose. I don't know. I mean, obviously these things didn't work, but yeah, that always fascinated me as a kid. Anyways, so there was, oh, and they also, this apartment building also had a room where you could, actually, I don't even know what you would call this room, but it was a big room and you could rent it for, for activities. So we, we had a couple of like family reunions or big family Christmas parties in this room and it was available for the residents to use. So if you took something like that, added more floors, added lots of solar panels, and used heat pumps to keep things warm in winter and cool in summer, sealed things up somewhat to conserve and recycle water, and connected it to some super-duper rapid transit system, and added in lots of cultural events in the communal areas and made it a totally affordable place for people to live in, 
That's my crazy and probably entirely unrealizable dream for Solarpunk housing. In short, a fun, social, affordable, and sustainable place to live in your own apartment and yet personally take up a minimal amount of space upon the land and so that the land can be given back to nature for plants, animals, and people to enjoy. That sounds fantastic. So I have a lot of questions, but who even had the idea for that in the first place? And why wasn't it replicated everywhere? Now I'm sad because that sounds amazing. And well, even like the non-solar punk uh, 1970s prototype sounds amazing. I I want it to be in every city. Um, well, and I realized you probably can't answer these questions, but I'm asking more rhetorically, kind of as a shake of my fist at the universe at large. So <laughs> there's actually a whole world of people out there working on these so-called autonomous buildings, you know, housing tons of people with a greenhouse attached to every kitchen or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of different dreams. And there are people who are working to make this kind of thing an everyday reality. But in terms of the apartment buildings, I think a lot of the apartment buildings that were built in the post-war years in, in California before the land got really expensive did actually tend to have all these amenities. I mean, all, even little apartments buildings, they almost all used to have swimming pools in them. I mean, not huge, like Olympic-sized swimming pools, but little swimming pools and, and you know, little rec rooms or... Yeah, that was a trend here too. In most of the buildings that I lived in, they have some very old pools or places where pools used to be, because I have been told that now pools are a little bit of a safety hazard. And so apartment buildings don't want to have them anymore. And so uh, they're an insurance hazard, not a safety hazard. Well, yeah. Anyways, apartment buildings tend to opt for like rec rooms or rental rooms or little libraries or something like that. Instead. Oh, that's cute. A little library, huh? That's That's adorable. I think more places should have stuff. <laughs> um, but what about you, Ariel? What does solar punk housing look like to you? Or maybe I should ask, what needs do you think solar punk housing should meet? So I guess I don't really have a concrete example, more like a list of sort of ideal requirements socially. So bear with me, because <laughs> on top of solar punk housing being, you know, net zero and sustainable and extremely affordable and all the infrastructure goodness that you mentioned and we just covered, I think solar punk housing would be responsive to the needs of the humans who are living in it. So basically, I don't think there would be like a one size fits all type of building in a solar punk world. And I think it would also evolve along with the community's needs. In one small example, speaking as someone with an acquired disability, circumstances can change really abruptly for any number of reasons. And suddenly you just can't climb the stairs, whether it's two steps or two flights up to your room or into your apartment. Maybe there's just a little like lip um, in front of the door that you have to get over. So right now you either have to move out of your home entirely or beg your landlord to put in accommodation or assistive devices like ramps or chairlifts, or if you own, pay to install those things yourself or just deal with it somehow. It's expensive and terrible either way, on top of all the health complications that you're already dealing with. So I was thinking that perhaps a solar punk community would have an architect and a team of people skilled in remodeling buildings who would be able to step in at that point and work to reimagine the space if that happens, which would definitely be helpful for people who are aging in their homes or who have started a family and suddenly need the space. So I'm, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt because... Is because I'm I'm having flashbacks to Brazil here, which is anything but a solar punk movie. 
but where you've got um, Robert De Niro, who kind of like repels in as the plumber. <laughs> Wait, take... <yeah. laughs> Just imagining <laughs> this crack team of solar punk architects <laughs> dropping in. I think it would be probably like a much slower committee filled process. <laughs> but I like that visual. That visual is fun. <laughs> Press the button. It's like the bat signal. <laughs> yes. The solar punk architect. So what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So, uh, people who've like started a family and suddenly they need the space to be childproof or things to be put up high or or stairs to be walled off. Perhaps the solar plant community would just be built with accessibility in mind first so that those modifications wouldn't even necessarily be needed in the first place. And so that's just a tiny example of the way that I think that solar punk housing would put humans first, I guess. So humans and their needs and just be sort of responsive. It's not like the building would be built and then the humans move in and then the builders have nothing whatsoever to do with the residents of that building. And the residents of that building sort of don't interact with the building itself and the building does not interact with the residents. It's just kind of like a, I don't know, just just a feature of the neighborhood that they live in. It seems kind of strange that it's just sort of separate. I think that you're basically entering a relationship with like a structure. I don't know. I think the solar punk community would somehow incorporate more of a responsive building strategy. I don't know. What do you think, Christina? Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm it's it's just weird to sit here and uh and think about housing being built for reasons other than utility for the people who are going to be living in it. Is that really what we've come to? I think so, especially in terms of if you're renting, say, it's the economic imperative, you know, you you get what's cheapest, right? Um, not necessarily what works the best for you in your situation at that point. You know, maybe you can't afford to get a building that is best for you and your situation, whether you're disabled or old or have young children or for whatever number of reasons, you know, it's you have to just put up with the building that you're able to afford. Yeah, you know, okay. And the other thing I'm I'm thinking now, I'm thinking about building codes. Because one of, you know, one of the one of civilization's successes is building codes because we figured out how to build buildings so that they they don't fall down on you. Even under, you know, even if there's earthquakes and stuff like that. But in large parts of the world, those codes may not exist or they're not enforced. And so people like tens of thousands of people die unnecessarily in earthquakes, either because they're living in these medieval buildings that aren't able to withstand an earthquake or because uh, nobody enforced the building codes. I'm thinking most recently about the massive earthquakes that struck southeastern Turkey and northern Syria on February 6, 2023. 60,000 people died, and 1.5 million people were left homeless because buildings just collapsed. So a lot of those buildings collapsed because they were ancient, built long before there were building codes for, you know, with earthquake standards. But many were new constructions in a land where building codes are laxly enforced, and half of the new buildings have been put up illegally and without anyone bothering to build them to code. So even though you have these really modern earthquake building codes in Turkey, not all the new buildings, you know, half of the new buildings aren't even built to that standard. And so you get huge apartment buildings that just crumble in a big earthquake, 
killing tons of people, leaving lots of people homeless, and these are being built in a region prone to big earthquakes. And this is just one of the many examples of this sort of thing that I could give you. Buildings built to the high standards of a building code should just be a given. It shouldn't be a privilege to live in a society where building codes are largely adhered to. Yeah. Everyone in the world <laughs> should be able to live in a place where they there's enough money to make sure that houses are built up to code. Codes are in place because they make things safer for the humans who are living in them. And, you know, if, if a building code does not respond to the needs of the humans who are there or it's outdated, then that should be reassessed and reevaluated. Well, and they shouldn't be used punitively because then people forget why we have them at all. But anyways, I think we're wandering a little bit off the track here. So um, <laughs> although, yeah, it's worth recognizing that that we need that we have to live by standards and we have to have ways to to enforce them um, and to make sure that enforcement is also fair. But now I want to ask you if you have any ideas for how solar punk could start tackling one of the major issues in housing today, which is the lack of it for many people. There's a couple of sides to this coin. One side of the coin is that not enough houses are being built either because of nimbyism or because developers can make more money selling and, or real estate people or people who own property can make more money if there's a housing shortage. The other side of that coin is homelessness. Mm, okay, wait a second. I'm just going to break in here before I uh, address the question entirely. Um, just to say that the term homeless is actually shifting towards houselessness, at, at least in my experience, to reflect the fact that some folks are perfectly at home without a traditional house in the way that we tend to think of it. It helps sort of break us out of the idea of what a traditional home should, quote unquote, be. Mm. I have many mixed feelings about this. I mean, I've heard of this a little, maybe not as houselessness. I've not run into that one before, but as people talking about the unhoused instead of the homeless. But I, I actually feel like this discussion is more of a distraction than anything else. It already has <laughs> derailed our conversation about how to solve homelessness, because now we're talking about vocabulary instead. I just think I'm probably just going to stick with using homelessness. I was sort of of that opinion as well. And then I moved to Edmonton, Alberta, and it was made pretty obvious to me through the teachings of of other people who knew a lot better than I did that a disproportionate amount of the houseless in Canada are Indigenous folks, yay colonialism, many of whom don't actually want a house in the way that Euro settlers mean it. And so homeless, quote unquote, isn't really the right word. Um, so they had a home. They still have a home. They also have a lot of home invaders who are telling them what kind of house they should want according to what those invaders think is right. So maybe this is specifically a Canadian decolonial thing about our language, but I don't want to make it seem like we're sort of deliberately ignoring it. That's sort of why I wanted to bring it up in discussions. I, sorry, I still have to pick at this nit here. Isn't calling someone houseless when they don't want a house also kind of problematic? That's a really interesting point you bring up. And I... Yeah, I just don't see how calling them houseless is actually an improvement upon calling them homeless. I mean, I understand what you're trying to get at, but but anyways, whatever we want to call it, people living on the streets, if they don't want to be living there, is a problem. And it's a complicated problem. 
Um, and so these days the problem can be as quote unquote simple as rents being so outrageously expensive and paychecks being so outrageously low that even people working two jobs can't afford to rent an apartment. So they end up living in an RV that may or may not even be capable of driving anymore. Or the problem can be complicated by issues of emotional trauma, mental health problems, and alcoholism or, or other types of substance abuse. Or it can just be that there will always be people who don't fit into the system and go nomad. But our society, so fixated on property, has no place for that. And then there are the issues of sanitation, homeless encampments tending not to be plumbed, nor have regular garbage pickup services. How are Solarpunk's visions or dreams or whatever you want to call it of housing relevant to these issues? I think it's very relevant uh, because, in my opinion, this is where the affordability part of the equation would shine. So Solarpunk housing would be, in my imagination, low cost or no cost, depending on the humans who live there and what they're capable of contributing financially or in other ways. I think the way to get there is to take the profit motive out of housing, like right now. Wow. Okay. I mean, this is a pretty radical thing you're suggesting here where housing would not cost people very much or wouldn't cost them anything at all. That is, that turns our societies on their heads. I mean, how, maybe I should just ask you to <laughs> to elaborate here and help me envision this. Two things. Um, the first is that actually there are places in the world where houses don't accrue value. So in most of the West, we're so used to that being a reality, like you you buy at a certain amount and then it the line goes up. It just always keeps getting more and more expensive. But for example, a house in Japan actually function more the way a car does. So it loses value the moment you complete your purchase. And this is due to a number of factors that I'm not going to get into right now or right here. But basically, it means that someone looking for a house in Japan can buy an older farmhouse for quite cheap. I mean, it also comes with maintenance and living out in the middle of the country, but some people like that. Whereas here, the older house is, generally the more astoundingly expensive it is. I live in an area that was settled in the Victorian era, and so there are some very beautiful and stately sort of like red brick, stained glass, Victorian-style houses around here, and these houses are prestige items, basically. It's like driving a very expensive car. That aside... I see a transition to taking profit out of housing already kind of underway now in some communities. This is my second thing, which is the example of communal housing, which is sort of like a corner of this taking the profit motive out of housing. At its base, it's a community of people coming together intentionally to split the costs of housing and live together in a way that recognizes the humanity and the needs of each person. I actually used to live in a housing cooperative in Edmonton, and it really opened my eyes to the way that people are living outside of the housing industry. The cooperative had young families in it, but a lot of the original members who had founded it in the 80s are getting older. And there's a program called Aging in Place that specifically addresses the needs of older adults living in their homes to try and keep them living there as long as possible. So things like installing chairlifts or grab bars or ramps or whatever. So housing cooperatives, in my experience, respond to the needs of the human beings who live in them. For example, there would be work bees at one of the community houses to work on the gardens or paint the exterior of the house or renovate a basement apartment, for example. So all the residents of every single house would get together to work on one house together. And then also there would probably be a potluck dinner afterwards. How does that take the profit motive out? Because someone still had to buy that piece of property. 
but it was the collective that sort of came together and pooled their resources to buy that property and have thus, um, like I was able to rent it as a poor grad student because they have kept the rental prices very low, sort of below market rate. But well, okay, they- but they're not like a mutual fund that owns the house and is just trying to suck as much profit out of it as possible. So that, yeah. okay. This is a community group who were like, hey, we have individually, we cannot afford to buy a house, but collectively we can pool our resources and we can buy a couple of houses or, well, actually they just started with one house and then moved on to getting more houses as they came up for sale in the neighborhood that they could all live in because they didn't mind sharing space, especially sort of with an eye to the future and saying, you know, like, this is something that we want we want life to be good and we don't want the affordability of housing to get in the way of that. But it's so, I mean, how does this take the profit motive out of housing any more than say a family deciding to buy a house and live in it? This is, this is just a way to survive in the system or is this a way to actually change the system? I mean, it's a way to survive in the system, but it's also with an eye to changing the system because the more people realize that this is an alternative method that they can use to, I guess, create community and live within the system, then it becomes, well, the system, the the housing industry becomes less of a dictate over the sort of health and happiness of people's lives. Because housing is huge. Housing is a huge investment, not only in terms of money, but also in terms of time And if you have a community behind you that can help you and that are sort of in this together, then you're able to sort of communally share that, I guess, mental and emotional burden, as well as the financial burden. I don't think that it's, you know, tearing down the housing industry as it is, you know, like it's not something that's going to change fundamentally the way that we do housing in North America. No, I mean, housing co-ops go back decades. Exactly. So it's, but it is something I think that is gaining ground and traction among a lot of people due to the housing crisis. I guess it comes back to imaginative expansion. No, except, I mean, this sort of stuff goes back, really goes back decades and decades and decades. I mean, um, probably to way before Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker movement, which is, you know, got to be almost 100 years old by now. But the thing is, is that those sort of exist as like historical examples. And so if you don't know someone who lives in that, I guess, reality where housing is secondary to the community, basically. Right now, I would say housing is integral to sort of an individual's life. And then the community, you know, like come come second or third or fourth or fifth or whatever. So, okay, so I guess we both seem to think that dreams of solar punk housing lean towards the communal. Yeah. Either in sort of, you know, big buildings that are big enough to be self-contained and can help people collectively take up less space. You're thinking of much smaller things like sort of individual or houses or maybe kind of larger houses, but still houses, not gigantic buildings, where people come together into some kind of intentional community, I guess we would call it. Yeah. So basically, we all have to learn to share and to get along better with others. 
what does all of this mean then for home ownership? Is home ownership possible in a solar punk future? I mean, owning homes as homes, not as investments. I mean, like in an ideal solar punk society, people wouldn't need the financial cushion of a house to fund their retirement or like later in life housing situations. After I had my car accident um, and I was basically learning to walk again, um, the apartment building that I was in, it was lovely. My apartment was all a single floor. It was wonderful. But the doors in the front were not automatic doors. So I couldn't open or shut the doors. Also, the there was a slight li- like raised lip between the entrance of the apartment and the sidewalk outside. And let me tell you that that lip like it's something that I don't even think about or I didn't even think about beforehand, but it became a major obstacle to me for several months after my injury because I just was physically incapable of lifting my legs that high, you know? And I was thinking, you know, what about there were older people who lived in the building who used wheelchairs. I was thinking like, what what did they do? I guess they have an extremely uncomfortable and inconvenienced life just, but I don't know that they want to move elsewhere because probably, you know, they know people in the building or they've been there so long or it's their house or something like that. Right. So Yeah, it is ridiculous to think that just a tiny bit of inconsiderate design can be a huge obstacle to some people. But, you know, speaking of imagination, we're not terribly imaginative. We can't imagine this unless someone either points it out to us or we go through it ourselves. Not to harp on this tangent again, but solar punk art (laughs) and, and fiction is, I think, really helpful. Art well, not even just solar punk art and fiction, but art and fiction in general is just super helpful for being able to put yourself in the shoes of other people and think, oh, hey, I never thought of life like that. You know, if you're an introvert like me, then you don't have to actually go out and meet people and talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> read their memoirs and be like, oh, hey, I understand how, what life is like for you. And now I think about it in my own everyday life. Housing is built for humans. And I think sometimes we forget that. Taking the profit motive out of Hezing would allow people to just like enjoy living and being human, I guess. So at all stages of life in whatever situation. So solar punk housing to me means housing that actually serves people instead of the economy. So So solar punk can start doing housing in the solar punk way. And then maybe that will start changing some cultural norms and the ball will start rolling and someday everyone will live in a wonderful future in beautiful buildings that meet their needs. Because, I mean, solar punk's not going to just create its own little enclave and then never talk to anybody outside of it. You know, that's not what solar punks are about. Solar punks are about deeply engaging with other people and the systems that were sort of enmeshed within, you know, and realizing that we might not be able to change everything, but we can change this little, you know, like corner of of our community as well. So we just want to end here on the last little note about science fiction dreams of housing, because, you know, solar punk's not the first aspect or genre or moment of science fiction that has dreamed of housing. And so solar punk is just taking that in its own direction. So I'm, I was thinking of The Velt by Ray Bradbury. You know, there was this idea of the future house, which is essentially a smart house. It has big TV screens on the walls because that's like the... Oh, wait, I have read it. Yeah, um, with, the, with, the, with the lions. Yeah, and 
it was very long ago and has sort of blended together with a lot of like long story short the kids don't like their parents but the house is trying to support the kids and so the kids have basically tv screens for walls in the nursery and they spend all their time on the african savanna with the lions and eventually the lions somehow come to life and eat the parents he had a lot of stories about smart houses actually the one I'm thinking of was uh, post-apocalyptic because, of course. And, yes, uh, the house that's all by itself, right? Doing yeah. its stuff. Yeah, it's still, you know, keeping time and, you know, like adhering to the schedule of people who are long dead because of an apocalypse, kind of nuclear apocalypse, of course. It's very haunting and tragic. But It also- revolves around some famous poem, if I remember correctly. The story that Ariel is talking about is There Will Come Soft Rains. And that's also the title of the poem that it's based on, um, which is by Sarah Teasdale. So, There Will Come Soft Rains, parentheses, wartime. There will come soft rains and the smell of the ground, and swallows circling with their shimmering sound, and frogs in the pools singing at night, and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire, whistling their whims on a low fence wire. And not one will know of the war, not one will care at last when it is done. Not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly. And spring herself, when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone. Oh, I don't remember that, but that would make sense. Usually haunting tragedy tends to come out in very poetic language. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, the, the the veld is much more fun. <laughs> but none but, of it's particular. But it's the smart house, right? Already in the 1950s. So we've got sort of that sort of seed in the science fiction imagination that now is sort of in our present reality. Maybe not in the same. Oh, but I tell you, a smart house, a smart house is not part of my solar punk dreams for the future. I, you know, I don't want to have to spend a lot of time arguing with my refrigerator about all this crap it's just ordered for me that I don't want to eat. Oh, yeah. You know? It's a privacy nightmare, like in terms of data and stuff like that. Well, and you know, algorithms are actually really, really bad about figuring out what I want. And so I can just imagine an algorithmically run refrigerator making all the orders for me and just making my life, turning my life into a living hell. Mm, yeah, I think, yeah, um, solar punk housing, I don't think would have smart devices or, well, not those it, kind, not those kind, you know, smart enough to, to respond to humans needs, dumb enough not to like be disastrous. <laughs> well, I mean, smart oh. stuff, smart stuff, taking care of like um, the heating and the cooling and mm-hmm. the, that kind of smart stuff but not yeah my um before she died my grandmother actually used her amazon alexa as a way to remind her to take her pills um so like i don't agree with the amazon alexa like entire package but just that one feature was actually really helpful <laughs> so yeah um... i mean i think that nothing is pure evil mm. um even even bad things have their uses yeah, yeah. I mean, and that, that's how they get their hooks in you, right? So Yes, everything's a grab bag, right? And that brings us to the end of the first episode of Season 4. I hope we've gotten our hooks in you, 
and that you'll be back for the next episode. Until then. Thank you for listening to Solar Punk Presents, a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon and Christina De La Rocha. The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional territory of the neutral Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. And in Germany. The opening and closing music for this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol, available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Don't forget to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash solarpunkpresence. Every little bit helps us keep bringing you discussions and interviews. Until the next episode, keep dreaming. And stay solarpunk. <laughs>